James chapter 2. As we saw several weeks ago at the end of chapter 1, James uh, tells his readers that there are three qualities which are to mark their religion or their faith. A controlled tongue, a care for those in need, and keeping oneself polluted or from being polluted by the world. As I've mentioned, uh, the rest of his letter actually revolves around uh, these three themes. It's framed around these three qualities. But I've also noticed uh, there are those of us, uh, because of a series I did several years ago, who listen to the Bible on tape or on uh, MP3s or various formats. Uh, and I've listened through the New Testament in the last two weeks. And if you listen to it about an hour a day, it, the New Testament goes by rather quickly. And it struck me that these three qualities, you could take all of the exhortations, all the admonitions, all the commands of the epistles... And they would fall into these three categories. Controlling the way you speak and what you say. Caring for those in need, which would include a loving your neighbor as yourself, which we will see today. And keeping yourself from being polluted by the world. You could, you could distill all three of them, or all of the qualities, into these three categories. I, I found that really striking. Just time and time again as I was listening through, particularly the Pauline epistles, but even uh, Peter's and John's epistles, these are the three things that they mention over and over again. Now, when James begins chapter 2, he surprises us because he doesn't begin with the first quality, which we would expect. After all, he's the one who chose the order in which he mentioned them. He mentions controlling your tongue first. Why not? begin with that. But he begins with the second quality, that is, caring for those in need. He also surprises us because he no longer talks about religion, but about one's faith. Um, And we might think that, well, faith is internal and religion is external, but I think in this chapter what James does is he brings the two together, lest we think that there be a division. We are to not only be hearers, but doers. We are not only to have faith, if you wish, we are also to put it into practice in religion. And later on, I think next week, the Lord willing, uh, we will look at the issue of faith and works in a passage that many people uh, justify their rejecting uh, the book of James. Uh, Based on this, uh, he's actually bringing the two together, the internal and the external. I think James also surprises us because he approaches it negatively rather than positively, you know, rather than saying, okay, caring for those in need, this is what it involves. What he does is he speaks negatively and he talks about partiality. Our faith, our religion is not to be marked by partiality. That is, we are not to judge based on outward appearances and to show preferences for those who appear wealthy over those who appear poor. And I didn't mention this, but when I was going through this, I thought of an incident when my brother first moved to Boise. Uh, He attended a church there and uh, didn't dress up, you know, particularly well. Anyway, that church has a policy that whenever someone comes and asks for help uh, financially or uh, materially, they say, well, fine, we need you to come and attend our church, uh, and then we can talk about it. 
Well, some homeless person had come to them the week before and asked or had called on the phone and had asked for something. And they said, okay, show up to church. Well, my brother walks in and they're like, oh, (laughs) here he is, the homeless person. Uh, He showed up. Uh, You know, just because people appear something doesn't mean that they are something. And, And I think James is concerned that people are judging based on appearances. As we saw last week, James gives us several reasons why we are not to judge based on appearance. Um, the first reason deals or is connected to the word glory or glorious. Glory represents the personal presence of God. And by the way, look at verse number one. He says, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. The glorious almost seems to be a throwaway adjective, something that he's just sort of added there. But actually, glory is the key. Glory represents the presence of God. And Jesus is the glory of God. He is the presence of God in the world. And we've talked about it in chapter 1. We, sh- we are not to ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? But what did Jesus do? Jesus, who is the glory of God, when he was in the world, what did he do? And if that was the only thing that James said, verse number 1, that should give us enough to say, Jesus did not judge by outward appearances, and neither should we. We are not to show favoritism. Jesus did not show favoritism based on economic status. He didn't show favoritism or partiality based on other things as well. For example, gender. Uh, Jesus' interaction with women, I think we sort of take it for granted, but in that culture, was, was really quite radical. Based on health. Jesus touched lepers, social standing. He dealt with outcasts as well as leaders, and reputation. He, he ate with sinners and tax collectors. If Jesus, who is the glory of God, did not show partiality while he was here on earth, why should we? The second thing that James tells us is that God's choices in building his kingdom runs contrary to our choosing between the wealthy and the poor. As he says, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom? And then lastly, uh, and I think this is very specific to his situation, he mentions that those who are wealthy tend to be oppressive. I think this is based on their experience. I don't think that James is making uh, a definitive statement that all rich people at all time in history have been oppressive. But their specific experience should, should really open their eyes to say, why are you showing preference to the rich when the rich tend to be oppressive? I mentioned last Sunday that I might speak about the twin issues of wealth and poverty today, what the Bible says about them. And I've decided to postpone that for a bit uh, later in our study in the book of James. I would mention that a year and a half ago, in April of 2002, I did a three-part series on money, and I think we have it somewhere in the church library, either on cassette or on CD. And I just will mention quickly some of the principles that we saw in our study there. The fundamental or the foundational principle is that God is the owner of all things. He is the creator and the absolute owner of all things. As the psalmist says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. We also saw that God has delegated to humanity the full responsibility of caring for his creation, his property. And within that context, he has assigned the right of private property. This is seen in the Eighth Commandment, which we are told we are not to steal. 
the Eighth Commandment not only, uh, or theft, not only violates the Eighth Commandment, it validates private property. Because how can you steal if there is no ownership? And we also saw that if these things are true, then two things we should keep in mind. Wealth, poverty, ownership are not secular or non-religious ideas. They are profoundly religious. If God is the owner of all things, then anything dealing with ownership is a profoundly religious idea. And secondly, ownership has social implications. Um, it's God's property. We're managing it. We will give account one day. We should be careful in what we do. But we will look at more of this when we look at the issues of wealth and poverty. Today, in our passage, James continues to deal with partiality. That is one of the connecting words between verses 1 through 7 and verses 8 through 13. Uh, sort of explaining and expanding uh, on what he has just said. Follow along, if you would, as I read this, beginning in verse number 8. James chapter 2, verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism... You sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The first thing that might jump out at you at this pass, in this passage, as it did at me, is that James is very clear in this passage about favoritism or partiality. It is sin. Okay? One could argue that in verses 1 through 7, James strongly discouraged showing partiality. Well, here, you know, he says just very specifically... If you show favoritism, you sin. But this isn't the first thing he says in this passage. The first thing is keep the royal law. Okay? Well, let me back up a bit before we jump into verse number 8. In verse number 1 of this chapter, the word that is used for favoritism, in the King James it is respect of persons, is plural. So that if we would give an exact translation, it would be do not show favoritisms, but we don't speak that way. Don't show partialities, we don't speak that way. Um, I think what it is is that James is speaking of partiality of any shape, any form. He gives a specific example, wealth and poverty. Okay, but that wasn't all he had in mind. He's speaking of showing partiality, judging based on external circumstances. Now in verse number 9, when we come to the word favoritism, and again, these are the, this is the word that binds the two passages together or connects them, the word is singular. And it comes after a reference to your neighbor. Okay. This is an important shift, by the way. The first passage dealt with fellow Christians. If somebody comes in to worship with you, someone who is a brother, now it leaves the congregation, if you wish. It goes out into the real world. And here it talks about your neighbor. The question comes up, who is my neighbor? And for our purposes, I think Scripture teaches anyone who needs my care and my attention, that is my neighbor. Which means 
caring for those in need, loving my neighbor. It's two different ways of saying the same thing. But what I want to get across at this point in the sermon is that it is just as wrong to not love my neighbor if he's rich as it is to not love my neighbor if he is poor. You might say, well, the poor people, they need our care and attention. I think James would argue that the rich do as well because care and attention is not just money, material things. It is much more than that. How are we to treat the poor? How are we to treat the wealthy? How are we to treat anybody? Well, in verse number 8, we are to obey the royal law. Let's talk about the law and Christians. We've, we've come to, you know, we have to answer this question, and, and many Christians, I think, have failed to answer this question correctly. Um, James tells us that obeying the law is doing right. But those of you who are familiar with the New Testament, oftentimes when you mention the law, the, the verse that comes to mind is from Romans chapter 8. You are not under law, but under grace. And again, this is why James' book has been sort of marginalized, his emphasis on the law. People don't like this. No, James, we're not under the law. We don't have to keep the royal law. We're under grace. By the way, what I just quoted from Romans chapter 6, verse 14 uh, I didn't quote the whole verse, and in that sense, I'm somewhat misleading. But I've done it deliberately because most people don't quote the whole verse either. They only quote that little part of it to sort of throw in a zinger. Oh, I don't have to keep the law. I'm under grace, not under law. We need to ask ourselves, when was the law given by God? And why was it given by God? If you read the first 20 chapters of Exodus, you have the story. At the beginning of the story, the Israelites are slaves in Egypt. They are in bondage. They are in slavery. At the end of the story, when the Ten Commandments are given in chapter 20, they are now a free people. They are camped at Mount Sinai waiting to hear from God. God had led them there. Um, as best we can tell, Mount Sinai is not the way you would go if you were going from Egypt to Palestine. It's a long detour but God led them there by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And he gave them the law. And the point is that God redeemed his people. He rescued them from slavery. Then he, he led them to a place and then he, give, he gave them the law. In other words, grace comes first and then the law. He rescues them and then he gives them the law. If you, again, read those 20 chapters, you have the blood of the Passover lamb, they are delivered out of Egypt, and then they are given the law. Redemption, and then response. Okay? I think that's really important, because most people see it as law and then grace. See, somebody telling me what to do, but now I've been set free, I don't have to do what somebody used to tell me to do, I don't have to follow the law. No, grace comes first, which has certain implications. First of all, we obey because we have been redeemed, not in order to be redeemed. Our obedience is to follow the obedience of Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the law. He kept the law, Romans chapter 8. He kept it perfectly. We are to follow in his footsteps. 
And the second implication, uh, I would say, is those who do not want to obey God's law should not wish or desire to be redeemed. Uh, this is a problem in, uh, in this microcosm of the lordship debate. I don't know if you're familiar with this. There are those in the church who say, you can come to the Lord Jesus and say, I accept you as my Savior. Save me from my sins. But I don't accept you as Lord. Don't tell me what to do. Okay? I accept you as Savior, but not as Lord. And hopefully somewhere down the line you will accept him as Lord. Well, we reject that. Okay? We accept him. He redeems us. And then he tells us how we are supposed to live our lives. We follow his example. And many Christians don't want to be told what to do. And I almost feel like saying, well, you know, turn in your membership card. You know, if, if you don't want to be a Christian anymore, that's fine. But don't say, I'm a Christian, but God does not have a right to tell me what to do. All that to say that if we follow the example of Jesus, we who have been redeemed, who have been rescued from sin, should follow the law of God. Okay? Now, what exactly is the royal law? If we accept that James is not careless about his words, like the word glorious in verse number one, there must be a very specific reason for him to refer to the law as the royal law. I don't think this expression is used anywhere else in Scripture. It may be, but I can't think of any place where it is used. Um, if we accept that James used the sort of the stream of consciousness approach, that is, using words to connect his thoughts together, what word would royal connect to in what we've looked at previously? It's actually there, and I think we would very easily miss it. It's in verse number 5. It's a lot easier if we were doing Greek, but we're not. We're doing English. Um, it's the word kingdom. Royal refers to that which belongs to a king, and kingdom is the place where the king reigns. So the royal law is kingdom law. If we are a part of the kingdom of God, then we listen, we are to obey the kingdom law. And the kingdom law is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Now the question that uh, not a lot of people ask, but I've always been curious about is, how, are we, how do we love ourselves? If I'm to love my neighbors myself, how do I love myself? Um, I, I think this is really important because if I don't know how I love myself, then how will I know how to love others? I think in our culture... This has sort of gotten out of hand, because um, what is learning to love yourself as the greatest love of all? Um, we have forgotten that nar uh, narcissism, at least in the original myth, was a curse. That we think loving ourselves is, is actually a very wonderful thing. How exactly do we love ourselves? Uh, one author has put it this way, hopefully not with an emotional thrill. Okay. Rarely with much sense of satisfaction. Mostly with wholesale disapproval. Often with complete loathing. This is how we look at ourselves. This is how we love ourselves. Not emotionally, not with, well, hopefully not with too much emotional thrill. Rarely with satisfaction. 
mostly with disapproval, often with loathing, but always with concern, always with care, always with attention. I would argue that even people who um, appear to be incredibly self-destructive, it's still about themselves. It's still about the self. Okay. And how we are to love our neighbor is we are to show them concern, care, and attention. And who is my neighbor? Anybody who needs concern, care, and attention. We are to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, as we care for ourselves, as we pay attention to ourselves and are concerned. This should also be the way that we treat others. Now, James tells us that the opposite of kingdom law is favoritism or partiality. If we obey the kingdom law, we will do what is right. If we show favoritism, we are committing sin. We need to understand that where there is a need, there is an obligation, kingdom law, to show concern, care, and attention. And I want to be careful here. Bear with me as I read through my notes. We have to be careful. We have to consider that the world is filled with needy people. We have far more neighbors than we could ever care for. What is one to do? Let me just suggest several things for your consideration. First of all, what care and concern refer to, I think, are not always exclusively material things. Sometimes it means simply being with people, physical presence. And as we saw in the book of Job, even the sacrament of silence. You don't have to say anything, you just need to be there. But even then, there's only so much I can do. There's only one of me I can only be with certain people in certain places at, a, at one time. I think the second thing we need to consider is who we are in terms of our limitations. We are finite. Our resources are finite. We need to think in terms of God's gifts to us. What has God enabled me to give or to show to someone else? We also need to consider where we are. I do think in many ways this is one of the curses of technology that uh, this morning before church, uh, get up, check my email to see if anyone has written, say they're not going to be here. I also check the CNN website to see what the news is, and I find out about people being killed 10,000 miles away. Okay. I have far more information than I actually need. And this information, if I'm not careful, will put on me a sense of obligation that I think is not real. I need to understand that where I am is where God has placed me. And that God presents me with opportunities to show care and concern. Opportunities that someone else might not have. I think that's really important. I mean, you look at us as a diverse congregation, where we came from. We're all from different places, and, and, and here we are in Los Angeles. And, and, and why is that, if not for God's providence in leading us and bringing us to this place? Okay. So where we are is where God has put us, 
and there we are to love our neighbors ourselves. Lastly, I think we need to understand that we need wisdom. We desperately need wisdom, knowing who to help, when to help, and how to help. I've mentioned this before, but I'm really struck by the story in Matthew chapter 26. It's also found in Mark 14 of the woman uh, who poured expensive perfume on Jesus. This is right uh, several days before his crucifixion. Mark tells us that the perfume was worth one year's wages. Okay. Now, we all earn different amounts of money, but consider what you earn in one year. Spending it on a bottle of perfume and then taking that bottle of perfume and pouring it on somebody's head. And I think any rational person would say that's wasteful. But even more so because right before that passage, we have the last public teaching of Jesus when he talked about, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. And if I'm the disciples, I'm thinking, okay, I need to care for those in need. And lady, what are you doing with that perfume? You could sell it and take that money, a year's wages, and help somebody in need. And Jesus says, leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing. Well, you know, to me, that's not the first thing or the first thought that comes into my mind. It doesn't strike me as a beautiful thing. It strikes me as a wasteful thing. I need wisdom to know who to help and when to help them. I need to know what I should do. Jesus also says, by the way, the poor you have with you always. That's the context. That's when he says it. There will always be people who have needs. So I think we need to ask for wisdom each day. When we get up to say, the people I'm going to come across today, you are the one bringing them into my life. Give me wisdom as to whether or not I should help them or not. We're told the, the, the saying by Marcus Aurelius, give a man a fish, he eats for one day, teach him how to fish, he, fishes, or he eats the rest of his life. Yeah, but sometimes people just need a fish. Okay? And sometimes they need to be taught how to fish. And I think we need the wisdom of the Spirit of God to know when to do each. Now, verses 10 and 11. And be patient with me here. Um, the whole law. I think those of you who are familiar with the New Testament are probably familiar with verse number 10. Not in this context, however, that if you are guilty of breaking one point of the law, you're guilty of breaking the whole law. And, and he mentions murder and adultery. Okay, those are the biggies. Okay. But wait a minute. What law did he just mention? Kingdom law. Loving your neighbors yourself. Okay. And what James tells us, if you are guilty of breaking this law, then you're guilty of breaking the whole law. I find this to be common among Christians, and maybe among other people as well, but I'll speak about Christians, who seem to have genuine affection for God, great, deep love for God, but really just can't stand human beings, you know, and just don't want to be around people. And so in many ways, that part of their obedience has been set aside. And James says, no, if you break that commandment, you're guilty of committing, you know, you've broken the whole law. It is as though you have committed murder, as though you have committed adultery. Okay. The command to love your neighbors, love your neighbors yourself is not only kingdom law, it is part of a whole. 
We don't have the freedom to pick and choose what we want to obey. To break one point is to break the whole law. One writer gives the illustration that if you see the crescent moon, and I have to tell you of all the phases of the moon, it's my favorite when the moon is just a sliver at the beginning of the cycle. We say, I can see the moon, even though in fact we only see a part of it because it represents the whole. In the same way, each commandment represents the whole, and we don't have the freedom to break any of them. Let me ask you a question, and I'll tell you at the beginning, it's a trick question. Do you know what the first commandment is? Do you know the first commandment? Like I said, it's a trick question. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Okay. That's why you, this whole controversy in Alabama about having the Ten Commandments and people wanting to put up the Ten Commandments, we should understand the Ten Commandments aren't simply ten rules. It starts out, I am the Lord your God. Okay, That's, that's the first commandment. I am your God. So no other gods. Moses, when he recounts to a later generation, 40 years later, what happened at Sinai, he tells them, you saw no form. You didn't see God. You heard his voice and, and said, we don't want to hear anymore. And so God wrote down the commandments. You heard God in the commandments. The law is who God is. It represents his character. He is the lawgiver, but there's nothing arbitrary about these commandments. It is, in fact, a representation of who he is. And if you say, well, you know, this actually doesn't apply to me, you're saying you know better than the one who made you. Now, verses 12 and 13, and we will finish up here. The law of liberty. James has given us two reasons why we are to love our neighbors ourselves. First of all, we should obey the law because it is kingdom law. Second of all, it's God's law. We must obey it. We don't have the freedom to say, I want to break this one point. Now he gives us a third reason. We can obey it. We have freedom, the law that gives freedom. We've already heard James talk about this, the law that gives freedom an expression that for many people creates problems because for us, in our time, if you say this is the law, it means you can't do something. Okay, It's like a traffic light. I don't know if you've ever thought of this. What do you call the traffic light? What do most people call the traffic light? The red light. Well, it has two other colors, Okay, but red is the one that sticks in our mind because it says no. Okay, And so when you say the law that gives freedom... People like that's not that doesn't work. That's an oxymoron. That, that that's a paradoxical phrase, because law says no, and if you if someone says no to you, then you lose your freedom to do what you want. But again, go back. When was the law given? It was given to people who had been slaves, and now they were free. And how are they supposed to act? How are they supposed to live? For four hundred years, somebody had been telling them what to do every day. Now, all of a sudden, what am I supposed to do? And God says, you're made in my image. The law represents me. This is how you're supposed to live. There's a wonderful movie, a powerful movie, Shawshank Redemption. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Uh, but the one character at, at the end, uh, Morgan Freeman, is, is paroled. 
and he works in a grocery store and at one point raises his hand to the boss and says, I want to take a bathroom break. And, and the boss says, you don't have to ask me every time you need to go to the bathroom. And Morgan Freeman, you have the voiceover, he says, you know, for 40 years, I couldn't do anything without asking permission. Now I don't have to ask permission. And the tension was really tremendous for him. You can't release a whole nation of people and then say, do what you want and call that freedom. You call that chaos. You release a nation of people and say, I made you, and this is what I made you to be. Follow these commandments. In the same way that one could say that putting gas in a car gives it the freedom to run, and putting water in the same gas tank does not give it the freedom You you can't say to human beings, do what you want, be free. That's not freedom. Freedom is being who you should be. And as I said earlier, just think a minute. We are made in God's image. The law is the representation of God's character. It's a natural fit that we made in his image would follow his law. We have the freedom to obey. But verse 13 brings up a very interesting point. We don't. We don't obey. We fail over and over and over again to live the life of obedience. And we have no one to blame but ourselves. We saw that in chapter 1. Don't blame God. Don't say God's tempting me. We are in constant need of God's grace and mercy. And God is gracious and merciful. Now, in our dealings with other people, will we be judges with evil thoughts? Verse number 4. Will we issue judgment without mercy? Verse number 13. Or will we forgive and show mercy as we have been forgiven and shown mercy? The Lord's Prayer is, is, is so rich and so powerful, particularly... Uh, the phrase, forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone who sins against us. We are not forgiven because we forgive others. We forgive others because we have been forgiven. Grace and then law. Salvation and then responsibility. And we are to show mercy because mercy triumphs over judgment. And I think at least in this particular passage, this is a wonderful way to end uh, with a word of comfort. It reminds me of what John would write in his first epistle. If our hearts condemn us, and whose heart hasn't condemned him or her, if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. Yes, judgment is what we deserve, but mercy is greater than judgment. And God has been merciful to us. Grace, now law. We have been redeemed, now let's be responsible and obey God's law. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the book of James and and for how much it has to teach us. For some of us, we really need to think through the issue of law. 
and our responsibility to obedience. And that we don't have the freedom to choose how we will be obedient. In a sense, to ask what would Jesus do, but rather to follow his example and to see what he, in fact, did do. We thank you for your mercy. We deserve judgment. And yet you have been so merciful. We thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who makes your mercy possible, who is willing to die in our place to wash away our sins. May we be obedient as he was obedient. I thank you that we could come together today to worship you. For the time we could spend with friends, brothers and sisters. Now we ask that your grace and your spirit would go with us as we leave this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand please as we sing the doxology together? Blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.